Good morning. Today's passage is in 2 Samuel chapter 9, and you can find it in page 324 in the Red Bible. And I'll give you some moment to find it. So, 2 Samuel chapter 19, starting from verse 1. Joab was told, The king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning, because on that day, the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day, as men stealing, who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab went into the house to the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders of their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes. Throughout the tribes of Israel, the people were all arguing with each other, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies, and he's the one who rescued us from the hands of the Philistines. But now he had fled the country because of Absalom, And Absalom, whom we anointed to rule over us, has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priest. Ask the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his palace, since what is being said throughout Israel has reached the king at his quarters? You are my brothers, my own flesh and blood. So why should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my flesh and blood? May God deal with me be ever so severely, if from now on you are not the commander of my army in place of Joab. He won over the hearts of the men of Judah as though they were one man. They sent word to the king, return, you and all your men. Then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan. Now the men of Judah had come to Gilgal to go out to meet the king and to bring him across the Jordan. Shimei, son of Jerah, the Benjaminite from Behurim, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand Benjamites, along with Ziba, the steward of Saul's household, and his 15 sons and 20 servants. They rushed to the Jordan, where the king was, 
They cross at the ford to take the king's household over and to do whatever he wished. Then Shimei, son of Jerah, crossed the Jordan. He fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May my lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I have come here as the first of the whole house of Joseph to come down and meet my lord the king. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said, Shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. David replied, What do you and I have common, you sons of Zeruiah? This day you have become my adversaries. Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Do I not know that today I am king over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He said, My lord, the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so that I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me, and he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. My lord, the king, is like an angel of God, so do whatever pleases you. All my grandfather's descendants deserved nothing but death from my lord, the king, but you gave your servant a place among those who sat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? The king said to him, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the fields. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything now that my lord the king has arrived home safely. Basilei the Gileadite also came down from Rugerim to cross the Jordan with the king and send, to send him on his way from there. Now Basilei was a very old man, 80 years of age. He has provided for the king during his stay in Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. The king said to Basilei, cross over with me and stay with me in Jerusalem and I will provide for you. But Basilei answered the king, How many more years will I live that I should go up to Jerusalem with the king? I'm now 80 years old. Can I tell the difference between what is good and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats and drinks? Can I still hear the voices of men and women singers? Why should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will cross over the Jordan with the king for a short distance, but why should the king reward me in this way? Let your servant return, that I may die in my own town near the tomb of my father and mother. But here is your servant, King Mum. Let him cross over my lord the king. Do for him whatever pleases you. The king said, Kimhum should cross over with me, and I will do for him whatever pleases you. 
and anything you desire from me, I will do for you. So all the people crossed the Jordan, and then the king crossed over. The king kissed Basilei and give, gave him a blessing, and Basilei returned to his home. When the king crossed over to Gilgal, Kimhum crossed with him. All the troops of Judah and half the troops of Israel had taken the king over. Soon all the men of Israel were coming to the king and saying to him, Why did our brothers, the men of Judah, steal the king away and bring him and his households across the Jordan together with all his men? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, We did this because the king is closely related to us. Why are you angry about it? Have we eaten any of the king's provisions? Have we taken anything for ourselves? Then the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and besides, we have a greater claim of David, on David than you have. So why do you treat us with contempt? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But then the men of Judah responded even more harshly than the men of Israel. Well, thank you so much, Rika, for that reading. And uh, let me add my welcome to Simon. My uh, name is Danny, if you haven't met you. And uh, if this is your first time, welcome to Mornings and welcome to 2 Samuel and uh, this wonderful uh, passage that Rika just read to us. Well, uh, what do you know about the end of the world? What do, you, what do you know about the end of the world? Uh, maybe you feel that the end of the world is one of those strange uh, topics that is best left to that eccentric street preacher. You know the one, the guy with the beard and the sandwich board, the end is nigh. Or perhaps it's the topic for Hollywood filmmakers or uh, those Christians you sometimes find who are a little bit obsessed with the book of Revelation and seven-headed beast and the number 666 and the rapture and so on. Well, maybe you worry about the end of the world. Maybe you worry about the premature end of the world brought about by human causes, a sudden nuclear apocalypse, or the more gradual desire, uh, demise brought about by humanity's abuse of the natural world. Maybe you've watched the recent David Attenborough series and seen the ice caps melting and the drought and the famine and the flooding which is coming. Or perhaps you sense that the topic, the end of the world, is just too baffling to understand, too remote to imagine, and almost impossible to relate to life now. Maybe you would prefer to toss the matter into the too hard basket. After all, life here and now has enough challenges, doesn't it? Without worrying about the end of the world. Well, what do we learn from the Bible about the end of the world? The Bible tells us the end of the world is a day of fulfilled promises. It's a big day, as you might expect. It's a day of the restoration of the whole of creation. It's what the whole creation has been looking forward to since the first man and woman sinned and brought God's curse upon the world. It's a day when all opposition to God will be put down and all who belong to God will be raised up and made safe for eternity. It is that long-promised day when history, as we know it, will come to a conclusion, and when it will be possible to say the words of Revelation 11, 
that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The end of the world in the Bible is a big day. It's a good day. It's a day to look forward to. But how are we to imagine the end of the world? How can we picture something that is so utterly without parallel? How can we conceive of the end of the world so that it becomes a useful, practical, energizing part of Christian belief rather than a vague, abstract, and remote notion? Well, the Bible has a range of images to help us. Uh, Some of these are apocalyptic, using otherworldly ideas to convey something that is beyond our present experience. The earth will melt in the fire of God's judgment, 2 Peter 3. The stars will fall from the sky like leaves falling from an autumn tree, Isaiah 34. There will be thousands upon thousands of angels, Matthew 25. There will be trumpets blown, Revelation 8. There will be a rider on a great white horse, Revelation 19. But there is one particular aspect of the end of the world that we are to grasp. One particular aspect that ties all these things together and makes sense of them. In fact, the Bible speaks of this reality and the end of the world as one and the same thing. It's something that gives us enormous clarity in the midst of all those apocalyptic images. It's something that makes the end of the world personal and not just abstract. It's something that ought to make every believer look forward to the end of the world and every unbeliever dread the end of the world. And it's this. In the Bible, the end of the world comes when Jesus Christ returns. The end of the world and the personal return of Jesus Christ are one and the same thing. And therefore, when Christians pray, your kingdom come, we are not praying for some vague, abstract future state, nor are we putting our hope in some gradual unfolding process of evolution. We are praying for the unique event, the personal return of the man, Jesus Christ, to his world. The one-off event in time never to be repeated, the return of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian this morning, this is your hope. He is our hope. This is what we should be looking forward to, the return of Jesus Christ. Well, that's all very well, I hear you say, but what has this got to do with 2 Samuel 19? What has this all got to do with the passage that we just read? Well, in our studies in 2 Samuel this term, we've been seeing that the suffering and persecution of David in the context of Israel's rejection of his kingship is given to us as a kind of a foreshadow and preparation for the suffering and rejection of Jesus on the cross. We've been seeing week after week, haven't we, that it does this by drawing attention to the similarities and the differences. It shows us how David's suffering and eventual victory is like Jesus' suffering and victory, but it also shows us how much better Jesus' suffering and victory is compared to David and his. Well, now, in chapter 19, we come to David's return to Jerusalem as king. Just as he was rejected and cast out and chased across the Jordan into the wilderness, so now, following his victory and the defeat of his enemies, he returns in a moment of great reversal. The kingdom of David 
which of course at this moment in time is the kingdom of God in its concrete historic form, is established by the return of the king. And as we follow David's return to the kingdom of Israel, we are therefore looking at a foretaste, a shadow, a glimpse of the return of Jesus to rule his world. And what we're going to see this morning is as we consider David's return and its inconsistencies, its weaknesses, its compromises, but its glory, we're going to see just how wonderful Jesus' return is. So we can look forward to it, so we can be among those who, call, who cry out to God, your kingdom come. So that's what we're going to do. Let me pray that God will help us to do that. Let's pray and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word reveals things we could not otherwise grasp or imagine so that we might have a solid hope beyond this dying world, so that we might live by faith in your promises, not by what is seen now. We thank you that we're going to see this morning that this hope is not some vague good wish, but the real hope of Jesus Christ personally returning to his world to rule. And so we pray that you'd help us in here and help the children in their groups as we consider David's return and grow in our grasp of Jesus and his return so that we might pray, your kingdom come. Amen. Well, it'd be helpful if you had that passage open. And on the inside of the sheet, you'll see we're going to look at it under three headings, a collision of hopes in verses 1 to 8, a complicated return, 9 to 14, and a compromise restoration, 15 to 43. So collision of hopes, first of all, in 1 to 8. We pick up the story at the moment when Joab, David's commander, learns what we already know from chapter 18. Look at verse 1. Joab was told, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom and for the whole army. The victory that day was turned into mourning because on that day the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. For one final time, we observe the inconsolable grief of David the father as he confronts the irreversible death of Absalom, his son. His love for his son, even a son who turned against him, is more important than the victory the army has won on his behalf. And this is a problem, as Joab now explains in verses 5 to 7. Just listen in to verse 6. Joab says to David, You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Only Joab would have the guts to speak to David like this, wouldn't he? His rebuke to David is very strong, isn't it? Perhaps a little bit exaggerated, perhaps just a little bit unfair. But the point of this is to bring back to our attention that collision of hopes for the kingdom represented in chapter 18 that we spent some time looking at last week. The collision of hopes represented by David on the one hand and Joab on the other. <coughs> As Simon reminded us, this collision 
is the unresolvable conflict between love and justice. On the one hand, Joab has achieved the victory, the justice that David needed over his enemies. He has killed the rebel son Absalom. The victory was necessary and it was right. It was in every sense of the word just. It put wrongs right, it punished the guilty, it restored peace to the land. And as Simon reminded us, this has been underlined by the narrator by showing us how Absalom died. Hung by his head in a tree, which we know from the Bible is a traitor's death. Cursed is the one hung in a tree, Deuteronomy 21, 23. And then remember he was pierced in his side by Joab's spears and then buried under stones, under rocks. And this is what it has taken to make the kingdom safe. Justice has been done. But the problem was Joab's strict justice, which was perfectly right and proper, left no room for David's love, left no possibility of forgiveness or reconciliation, which is what David wanted. And so these first few verses are just kind of bringing back to where we were last week and this unresolvable problem at the heart of David's kingdom. Joab's justice was not compatible with David's love. But David's love for Absalom was not able to save him from Joab's justice. And so what was David to do? Well, the point is, there is nothing he could do. There is no solution. It's a mess. It's hopeless. It's unresolvable. Well, scolded by Joab, he does one thing rather half-heartedly. Verse 8 so the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. There's no sign of David encouraging the men, as Joab had urged him to do. He's too consumed with grief to do that. But he goes out and sits in the gateway, a kind of a silent symbol that the king is safe and the kingdom is safe. It's better than nothing. And like everything else in this chapter, it's a bit of a compromise. Well, this compromise continues in the second section, a complicated return, 9 to 14. Like all civil wars, the end of the fighting does not cause the hostility that has been boiling under the surface to disappear overnight. Absalom's rebellion was more than a fight between a father and a son. You may remember that the nation of Israel is made up of 12 tribes descended from the sons of Jacob. And these tribes have been at war over this period. They have had to decide their loyalties between David and Absalom. And winning the battle does not mean David automatically wins the loyalty of the tribes and the unity of the nation. And this is what 9 to 14 and then 43 to 41 to 43 is all about. Well, first we see the confusion, conflict and competition between the various factors in 9 to 10. The people, we are told, in their various tribes were debating and arguing, discussing, why is it so long? Why is it taking so long to bring David back to power? There's a little bit of a kind of a, a fallout as the people recognize the worthlessness of Absalom and his cause, and they come to terms with the rightness of David and his claim to kingship. After all, they reason it was David who delivered them from the Philistines all those years ago. And you get a hint here that some of them are thinking it was a terrible mistake backing Absalom and rejecting the rightful king. It's time to put things right. It's time to bring David back. David, 
Presumably hearing about such discussions now takes a proactive action himself to consolidate his power. The first thing he does is to send a message to the elders of Judah, the southern tribe, who had, you may remember, been the first to support David in the early days. Verse 11, King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, asked the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his palace, since what is being said throughout Israel has reached the king at his quarters? You are my brothers, my own flesh and blood, so why should you be the last to bring the king back? Notice what David is saying here. He's saying something important and theological. He's cutting through all the kind of the party politics. You can imagine them with their hats on, bring David back, make Israel great again, all those kinds of things. But David cuts through all that and he says something very important. He says, look, we're all family. That word flesh and blood has been used before back in chapter 5 when David was anointed and crowned king. It's a recognition that, yes, there were 12 tribes, but they're all descended from the one man, Jacob. And this appeal to flesh and blood is saying, look, we are one family. And my aim as God's king is the unity of each one of them. It's important, as we see uh, the rest of the narrative unfold, that that is in David's mind. Well, that quest for unity is also behind the surprising decision to appoint Absalom's old commander as his own. Verse 13 you may remember this, Amasa was the head of Absalom's army just a short while ago. Verse 13, say to Amasa, are you not my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if from now on you are not the commander of my army in place of Joab. Well, there might be just a possibility that David was sort of putting Joab in his place at this point. But it's also a generous move. Clearly, David's aim is to unite the nation. And he's not going to go about that by retaliation or holding people who were previously his enemies to the fire. He is holding out an olive branch to everybody. And for now, David's generous diplomacy seems to work. Verse 14, he won over the hearts of all the men of Judah as if they were one man. They sent word to the king, return you and all your men. This very clear language tells us that David's victory over Absalom has now reversed the situation that Absalom caused. Remember, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Well, David has now regained at least the hearts of the men of Judah. A divided and broken nation is coming back together under its king. Or so it would seem. In fact, the complex return and the divided loyalties of the tribes of Israel will take more, much more, to bring together than David can achieve. We'll see this next week, and we begin to see it in our third section this morning, a compromise restoration, 15 to 43, the longer section. Now, you may remember that on the way out of, David, uh, of Jerusalem, David encountered a number of individuals. And in those encounters, we learnt what it means to follow a rejected king. We saw Ittai the Gittite. You may remember who was loyal. We saw Zadok and Abiathar who served him. We saw Hushai, his friend, and Zeba who appeared to be on his side, and Shimei who cursed him and threw rocks at him. Well, now as he prepares to return, we get a kind of a mirror image of some of those encounters as a number of people who met David the fugitive now meet him again as the victorious returning king. 
And for some of them, the change in David's circumstances leads to a dramatic change in their attitude to him. But what is more important for us this morning is that each encounter reveals some of the the possibilities and the imperfections of David's reign. So let's look at these briefly. There are three encounters. First, there is Shimei. Remember him? The one who hurled rocks and abuse and cursed him as he was running along. Well, in 15 to 18, we see Shimei and Ziba, who you may remember had brought gifts to ingratiate himself to David and denounce his master Mephibosheth, running, rushing, hastening to welcome the king back. Notice the speed. Shimei was the last person David met on the outward journey. He's now the first person to welcome him back. And that suggests a huge change of heart, doesn't it? There's an urgency about this. Shimei obviously realizes that he made a terrible mistake and that David has survived the rebellion and is now king. And he better put things right quickly. Well, listen to Shimei's plea for mercy. Verse 18. When Shimei, son of Jerah, crossed the Jordan, <clears throat> sorry, he fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May my Lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I have come here as the first of the whole house of Joseph to come down and meet my lord, the king. If you can remember the man from chapter 16, just a few days ago, as the narrative goes, it's hard to know how to take this, isn't it? It is a dramatic change of heart, if it's genuine. And it's very tempting to see it as a little bit convenient and self-serving. It's hard to imagine Shimei would have been moved to this kind of repentance had David not survived the rebellion and returned? Well, this is clearly the view of Abishai, verse 21, who believes that mercy is the last thing this man should receive. But listen carefully to David's response, verse 22. David replied, what do you and I have in common, you sons of Zeruiah? This day you've become my adversaries. Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Do I not know that I am king over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. The Hebrew word for adversary in verse 22 is the word Satan. The word whose forte is to accuse. And therefore David's strong response to Abishai puts him on a completely different page, doesn't it? It's a little bit like when Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Here is a king who is utterly secure in his kingship. He's won the victory. He fears nothing and nobody. And therefore, he is able to extend grace and mercy to his enemies. It's a wonderful moment, isn't it, of mercy and reconciliation. It shows that David, in his strength, in his victory, has nothing to lose. And therefore, he can give forgiveness to his enemies. But there is a little wrinkle in this. Look away now if you don't want to know the scores. I'm going to spoil the plot for you. This is not the end of Shimei's story. We're going to read on and maybe at some point come to the book of 1 Kings and 
the story just carries on into 1 Kings. And we find this man Shimei reappear again right at the end of David's life. It appears that either his repentance proves not to be genuine, or he lapses, or David's forgiveness proves not to be genuine, or all three. But in 1 Kings 2, the very last words David speaks that are recorded are an instruction to his son Solomon to bring the gray head of Shimei down to the grave in blood for cursing David. So what looks like grace and reconciliation is not quite in the end how it seems. It's partial, it's incomplete, it's compromised, it's very flawed, it's very human. You may notice that David keeps his promise not to kill Shimei himself, but on his deathbed he sends Solomon, his son, to do it for him. David gets his vengeance in the end. And so here we're seeing the imperfect, <coughs> compromised nature of David's return. He wants to establish a kingdom of repentance and grace, in which former enemies are treated as his family, in which satanic accusation and guilt are put out, but he cannot quite pull it off. Why? Because of sin. Because David's sin and Shimei's sin get the better of them both in the end. The brokenness, the guilt, the stain, the hurt are too deep for David to fix. That's the problem. Well, the next person David meets is similarly complicated. This is the uh, most complicated one. We'll spend a little bit of time on this. Mephibosheth, verse 24. Saul's grandson also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his moustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? Now, just a little reminder of the backstory here, in case you haven't been here the last couple of weeks. When Ziba, Mephibosheth's servant, who was mentioned in verse 17, but doesn't speak in this passage, met David on the way to exile, remember he claimed that the reason Mephibosheth had not gone with David into exile was not because he was crippled, but because he had betrayed him. Now, you may remember, if you were here, that we were suspicious of that, weren't we? Narrative didn't lead us in any conclusive direction, but it just felt wrong. It just smelled fishy, didn't it? Well, now we're given all these details about Mephibosheth's decrepit appearance. He hasn't looked after his crippled feet. He hasn't looked after his physical appearance. He hasn't washed his clothes. He probably smells from some distance. And these descriptions, you may remember, are a little bit like the description of Hushai, David's friend, when he met him. They're description of someone who has entered into David's mourning, entered into David's suffering. And I think we're given this to confirm our suspicion that Mephibosheth is actually loyal. And Ziba has been the traitor all along. And so now he gets to explain this in his own words. Verse 26, he said, My lord the king, 
Since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride on it, so I will go with the king. But my servant Ziba betrayed me, and he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. So I think the narrator has given us enough information to make a very clear case. Ziba is the villain, as we always suspected, not Mephibosheth. You may remember that Ziba always resented having to serve Mephibosheth and saw the rebellion as an opportunity to change his circumstances, to gain the, the farmland, the fields that had been put in his trust for Mephibosheth for himself. Mephibosheth, meanwhile, in great humility, comes to David, confident that David will discern right from wrong, happy to submit to the decision, whatever it may be, knowing, verse 28, that he has no right a word concerning justice. He has no right to ask the king for anything. So I think it's very clear cut. Here is an innocent man whose innocence has been proven. He has been betrayed. Which is why David's response is so surprising. Verse 29. The king said to him, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the fields. And that's it. David's decision is abrupt. Instantly, he understands what we understand. He understands that Mephibosheth has been deceived by Ziba. But he doesn't want any more facts. He doesn't want to spend any more time on this. The ESV says, why speak any more of your, your affairs? I have decided. Rather than restore the land to Mephibosheth, which would have been the right thing to do, he chooses to divide the land. And I think we are meant to see this is not fair. It's not just. It's not right. It's an incomplete restoration. He rewards a guilty man and deprives an innocent man of full restoration. And we'll never know why David does this. Some people speculate that he wanted to make a, a, a gesture to Saul's tribe. It's just settling things down and creating the least trouble he can. Another suggestion is that he's testing Mephibosheth's loyalty. He's saying, let's split the fields. And he's finding out whether Mephibosheth was genuinely interested in the fields or not. And you may recall that his son Solomon will do something very similar when he's brought two mothers fighting over a baby. He'll say, let's split the baby in two. And that brings out the, uh, the real mother. My mother says, no, you keep it. And maybe that's what's happening here. Well, we can't be sure. Whatever David's motives, Mephibosheth's reaction, do, concern, do confirm that he is innocent and loyal. Verse 30, Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything, now that my lord the king has arrived home safely. These are important words which we'll come back to at the end. Mephibosheth's last words align him with his father Jonathan, who gave up everything, you may remember, for the rule of David. He recognized David's kingship. And so that's all that matters. Well, we don't see David's response, and so we are left, aren't we, with a slightly unpleasant taste in the mouth. Here is Jonathan's son. Somebody you may remember David promised on oath to love, to treat with hesed, to treat with God's covenant loyalty and kindness. And it looks, doesn't it, that he has not kept his promise. He's not shown loving kindness to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth deserved a full restoration, but he only gets half. 
David's restoration is compromised and incomplete. You see the pattern? David wants this to be a kingdom of justice and generosity, but he can't quite pull it off. Even the best and most deserving subject, Mephibosheth, comes out slightly less well-off than he should. Well, the third person David meets, the happiest of the meetings, I think, also reinforces this. Meet Barzillai, the Gileadite. I have no idea why our, our parents don't plunder these passages for boys' names more, more than they do. What a great name, Barzillai, the Gileadite. He's what we might call a patron. He's a wealthy, generous supporter of David. And this is a happy meeting, isn't it? David seeks to reward his support by giving him a place in the new kingdom. Verse 33, and providing for Barzillai, as Barzillai had provided for David. But Barzillai refuses. He uses the most gentle and respectful reasoning, verse 34 to 37. He says, I'm too old to make this move now. It'd only be a burden. I want to go and die with where my parents are buried and so on and so forth. Here's a substitute, most likely one of his sons. Now again, we never will understand or never told the motives for this. We'll never know if this is completely sincere. But again, we're left with this slightly less than satisfying result. Here is a good man, a keen supporter of David. He's offered a place in David's kingdom, but he refuses in the end to be drawn in. He chooses life outside the kingdom, independent from David. Despite his great loyalty and service, he will not cross the Jordan and be part of the kingdom of God. And so, again, what is a happy occasion is tinged with a sense of failure. David wants to unite the people, to win their hearts, but even the best of them, he cannot quite pull it off. Well, the last few verses, 41 to 43, underline this compromised nature of the restoration of the kingdom. The tensions between the tribes are coming to a boil, and the chapter ends with squabbling and rivalry. There's a lot going on here. It's, it's fairly complex, but basically you've got the northern tribes and the southern tribes. Southern tribes are the Judeans, and the northern tribes are the rest of Israel. The northern tribes are resentful of the southerners' role in the restoration, verse 44, 41. The southerners respond by asserting their special relationship to David, verse 42. The northerners respond by asserting their size. They are the northern powerhouse and they have a greater stake in the kingdom. A while ago they were fighting against David, now they're fighting over him, verse 43. Then the men of Israel answer the men of Judah, we have ten shares in the king. That means they have ten tribes. And therefore we have a greater claim on David than you have. So why do you treat us with contempt? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the men of Judah responded even more harshly than the men of Israel. See what a mess this is? This family of Jacob. The king has returned, but the kingdom is fracturing underneath him. David is God's appointed king, but this is a kingdom marked by rivalry, fractions, envy anger and injustice and the chapter ends with those disputes unresolved and as we'll see next week unresolvable 
the united kingdom of David. The kingdom of God in its historic concrete form at this point is fractured, fragile, and unstable. Remember the prophet Nathan prophesied that the sword would never depart from David's house, and now we see the effect the sword is having on the whole nation. And so let's conclude. We began, didn't we, by thinking about the end of the world. What do we know about it? How do we think about it? Do we think about it with fear and anxiety or with longing? Your kingdom come. Well, three reflections as we conclude. First, this chapter warns us, as we think about the future against looking to human solutions to the world's problems. This, you may remember, is one of the great themes of the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, a theme introduced by the theme song in 1 Samuel 2, where the great and mighty and proud are humbled by the Lord, and the humble and hungry and needy are lifted up from the ash heap, seated with princes, where the wicked are silenced, but the feet of the saints are protected. Where it is not by strength that one prevails, but by putting faith in God's king, whom he will exalt. We'll return to this theme next week in more detail, but for now, it's a good reminder, isn't it, on this Remembrance Sunday, to have realistic expectations of life in this world. We've prayed this morning as... We should do for peace and freedom and stability for our world. This is what Paul teaches us to do in 1 Timothy 2, so the gospel can advance into the world. And we rightly care about the way our world is led. We rightly seek an interest in the way things are governed. If you're someone who signs petitions or writes to your MP or reads those consultations that the government puts out, that's right. It's right for Christians to be involved in this. It's a bit tedious to do sometimes, isn't it, to leaf through those consultations and respond, but it's right that we do that. But we must not expect perfect peace and justice in our world. We must not even really hope for it. Well, we can hope for it, but we must not expect it. Because peace and justice in our world is not something human beings can pull off. So I've said a couple of times in this series that I think David is the best human leader, one of the best that the world has ever seen. It's possible that Solomon, his son, will be better. But here we're looking at the cream of the cream. This is the kingdom of God. This is King David. And his house is plagued by the sword because of sin. And so we should expect the human race will always be divided, will always be at war. There will always be factions and conflicts. And if we look to human leaders or human systems or solutions, we will always be disappointed. And therefore, what can we do? Well, we must trust the gospel. We must lean on the gospel. The good news of Jesus' kingship. The good news of his perfect kingdom. 
that can fix the deep problems of our world. See, we may have come to church this morning and you're deeply conscious of the mess our world is in. It seems to be just increasingly in a mess, isn't it? But we have the answer right before us, don't we? The gospel of Jesus, his kingship. Because only in him can the spiritual brokenness, the shattered relationships, guilt and shame and failure be put right. Only Jesus can fix that. And so this is a good reminder to us, isn't it, to be realistic about what to expect in our world, where to put our effort, where to put our energy. Yes, write to your MP, please do. Write to your MP, protect marriage, protect freedom of speech, and all those things that we can have a say in. But realize that the only solution is the gospel of Jesus, which proclaims his kingship. And as Christians, we'll want to put all our effort into making him known. That's the first reflection. The second reflection is to ask you to think, what will it look like? What will we look like if we adopt this view? What will we look like if we adopt that view? What difference will it make? And the answer I want to draw your attention to is Mephibosheth who I think is the one person in the narrative who is worth emulating. He is the hero of faith in this part of the book because he lives in the light of the gospel of Hannah in 1 chapter 2. It's not Joab who lives by the sword that we are to emulate. It's not Shimei whose repentance is shallow, nor even Barzillai who refuses to follow David into Jerusalem. But it's Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, who wholeheartedly submits to David, who is prepared to give up everything in this world for the sake of the kingdom of God. Here is a crippled man who once called himself a dead dog with no rights, no claim, no hope, but that David might rule in righteousness and his kingdom come. Here is one of the weak ones of the world who trusts not in the great but in God. And that is why I think verse 30 is one of the key lines in the chapter. Mephibosheth hands over this world. He puts his hope, his trust in the kingdom of God. See, we're so easily seduced into thinking the world's ways, aren't we? We so easily value the things the world values. Status, strength, outward appearance, wealth, success, ability. And we so easily judge each person we meet on those terms. But God looks deeper. He looks further. God looks ahead to the last day. And on the last day, the victory and the glory and the reward will not go to those who are big in this world, but to those who made much of his son. Two humble, powerless people like Hannah and Mephibosheth who have learnt to cry out to God for strength and give up everything in the world for the sake of his king. And if we grasp the message of this chapter, we'll do the same, won't we? Well, thirdly, this passage teaches us to look forward to the king who is to come. 
Remember that the uh, end of the world is the return of Jesus Christ. But who is that Jesus who returns? What is he like? Well, David's failure points to Jesus' perfection. David wanted a united kingdom. He couldn't quite pull it off. His victory led to a restoration of sorts, but it was full of cracks and compromises and sin. Only the victory of Jesus, David's sinless son, can bring people together and make them one. Only Jesus can fix the world and make it new. How do I know that? How can he do it? Is it because of that strength that we see? The, 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 the horseman on the apocalyptic image in Revelation 19, the, whole, the white rider on the white horse, strong and victorious. Is it because of brute strength that he does it? After all, he is the son of God. But if we've listened to Hannah's song, that would be a surprise, wouldn't it? Now, come back to that tension between love and justice. Look again at David's prophetic words in 1833. This longing that comes from the heart of a father who cannot reconcile justice and love. He says, if only I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son. And David, without knowing it, points there to the solution. So the demands of justice meant that Absalom had to die. The demands of love meant that David longed for a substitute, someone to die in his place, even himself. But he couldn't do it because he had his own sin to deal with. And so with those words, he points us to Jesus as the one who suffers for us, the sinless one who dies in our place. And think again about Absalom's death, hung on a tree. The one hung on a tree is Jesus, 1 Peter 2. Pierced in his side by those spears. The one pierced in his side by the Roman soldiers is Jesus, John 19. Buried under rock, Jesus buried in a rock too, Matthew 27. And that's why the kingdom we look forward to is so different to the kingdom of David. Because it's a kingdom where sin has been conquered by the sinless king. The promise of the return of the king foreshadowed in David has been fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. And that's why the symbol of Jesus on the throne when he takes up his rule in Revelation 5 is not the rider on the white horse, but the lamb who's been slain. And when we pray your kingdom come, we are praying on the basis of a victory that has already been won on the cross. So let me ask you the question I began with. What do you know about the end of the world? Well, what we've learned this morning is that the end of the world is not a nuclear Armageddon or an environmental meltdown or some baffling range of apocalyptic horrors. But the end of the world is when we welcome Jesus Christ to take over his world, to rule it in justice and righteousness, to bring a perfect peace, to put down all opposition. Because he's already done it at the cross. And so we can pray your kingdom come. But we can also be those who say in Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of the world has become 
the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. Let's pray that we might be people of that hope and faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your forgiveness for the times that we so easily put our hope and trust in this world, in the wisdom of men, in the fragile, failing, uh, failing kingdoms of the world. We thank you that in Jesus' death on the cross, love and justice have met perfectly. And in his resurrection, he has already begun to remake the world broken by our sin so that we can look forward to a perfect kingdom of justice and peace. Thank you that because of your forgiveness, we can enter that kingdom without ruining it. And we can live now with a solid hope of Jesus' return, knowing that in the cross he has already conquered. He has already won. And so we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.